This business news podcast is supported by Hopgood Gannam Lawyers. Our knowledge and expertise has been delivering exceptional outcomes for nearly 50 years. All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At close of business, news briefing. Good afternoon, it's Jacinta Burton with your Friday afternoon headlines. Andrew Forrest-led 5.8 has received approval for its Spices site project in Fremantle after a development assessment panel's three-hour meeting. The JDAP has approved by four votes to one the proposal to redevelop the former Spices building on 10 Henderson Street today. 5.8's $35 million application proposes to build a six-storey hotel comprising 117 rooms, a ground floor lobby, a restaurant and small bar on the 2,834 square metre site. The City of Fremantle Council recommended the JDAP defer deciding on the proposal, instead requesting the applicant modify the design. The Council was opposed to the height limit, which exceeded the 14 metre limit for Henderson Street in the City's local planning scheme, but the JDAP decided the variations in height would not be detrimental to the area. 5.8 acquired the site, which currently contains a public car park from Sorona Urban back in 2018. And in other news, Oz Minerals has pushed the button on a $1.7 billion nickel-copper operation in West Musgrave, proclaiming the asset's enormous potential as a modern mine in an era of decarbonisation. The Adelaide-headquartered company informed the ASX this morning that its board had made a final investment decision to develop the Greenfields project, which would become its fourth operating asset. Oz Minerals estimates it will cost $1.7 billion to build the operation, which would include an on-site plant capable of processing 13.5 million tonnes of nickel and copper per annum. But that's compared to a $1.1 billion estimate flagged in a pre-feasibility study back in December of 2020. Oz says it has secured about $1.2 billion of the investment needed to develop the project through a syndicated credit facility with unnamed relationship banks. As for the rest, Oz Chief Executive Andrew Cole said the business was open to selling off a minority stake in the project and that it was currently engaged with a number of parties. Oz Mineral shares were up 0.92% today to trade at $26.30. And finally, Perth Glory has announced a solution to its unexpected search for a home ground after the soccer club's looming A-League campaign was put in jeopardy. Ongoing upgrades to HBF Park ahead of next year's FIFA Women's World Cup means the Glory is without its usual ground for 10 home games six more than first expected. But after trying to find an acceptable venue for several weeks, the glory has settled on Macedonia Park in Stirling. The pandemic has already severely impacted glory's revenue and now the inability to use the HBF Park means another season without decent crowd numbers. At this stage, the club hopes to play three home games at HBF Park starting in April. And coming up next, Matt McKenzie and Jordan Murray discuss new research quantifying global wealth and what it says about Australians and their way of life. Hopgood Gannam Lawyers is one of Australia's leading independent legal advisory firms. For nearly 50 years, our knowledge and expertise has delivered exceptional outcomes for our clients, giving them the most accurate, appropriate and usable guidance. We invest time and expertise to build trusted alliances with our clients and to understand their commercial drivers which enables us to deliver over and above what a traditional legal firm offers. 
To find out what we can do for you, visit hopgoodganim.com.au. Hopgood Ganim Lawyers. Exceptional outcomes. Welcome back to Act Close of Business. I'm Jordan Murray. And as always on Friday, I am joined by senior journalist Matt McKenzie. Matt, I anticipate we will have a wealth of content to get through in today's discussion. Mate, just like the Perth Mint, I hope we're producing the gold. You're indestructible, Matt. Today we're talking about a report from Credit Suez uh, about global wealth and the distribution of it. There's a lot of interesting, fascinating tidbits in this report, but as always, we're going to focus on the great country of Australia. What does this report say about the wealth of Australians? Well, it, it said that we're the wealthiest country in the world. Uh, it's certainly by looking by median, which is uh, a little bit different from mean. Mean is like the average if you add up all the wealth and you divide it by the number of people. Median is if you get the middle-ranking sort of person. And so that person, the, the middle-ranking Australian person, wealthier than the middle-ranking person anywhere else in the world using US dollars. So here's, here's some interesting facts for you. Uh, Australians are three times wealthier... At in the in the middle than they were in the year 2000. Uh, there are almost 2.2 million uh, Australians who are millionaires in US dollar terms, so most people who own a house in Sydney perhaps. Uh, last year, disposable income up, savings were up. Uh, we have lower wealth inequality than most places. And just to give you a bit, an, bit of an idea, the median or middle Australian has... 273,900 US dollars. Uh, then if you if you work that out in Aussie dollars, that's probably about 400,000. It was up about 10%. Um, and so this could tell us some interesting things about last year, because last year around the world, according to Credit Suisse, it's the, uh, they've been doing this for 21 years or something, and it was the highest rise in global wealth in the entire time they've been doing this. They said the highest rise ever. I'm not sure if they mean ever, ever, or just ever in terms of the time they've been doing this by percentage terms. And I think it was up almost 12% in percentage terms once you take out exchange rate fluctuations. So the world got a lot wealthier last year. Um, it's an interesting topic to explore, Jordan. Indeed it is. And just looking at the numbers here, there's some fantastic uh, insights into how wealth distribution has changed. And particularly, I'm glancing here at Belgium, and there's some very interesting uh, moves towards uh, inequality on that front. Um, just globally, though, w- what does the report say about the rest of the world? And let's compare that to Australia. So Belgium was second, uh, if you're using the median uh, term. Uh, New Zealand third, Hong Kong fourth. Uh, Some other interesting ones. When you look at the median wealth, US uh, was 18th. Mean, it was a fair bit higher. Qatar, 16th, looking at median. So the average Qatari has 100,000 US dollars worth of wealth. Um, In the US in particular, the the highest growth in wealth in the 2021 year uh, was, if you break it down by ethnicity, was actually Hispanics and African Americans. If you break it down by generation, it was actually millennials. So it was a positive year for millennials. Um, finally, perhaps. Uh, New Zealand were in third spot on median and they were up about 58,000 US dollars. So quite uh, quite a substantial increase, even more so than in Australia, Jordan. And then when you look at inequality, Australia is one of the least unequal places in the world when you measure by something called the Gini coefficient, which has some complex you know, integration and whatever mathematics behind it. But one of the lowest levels of wealth inequality. Here are some fun facts. In China, the top 1% have 30.5% of the wealth. In Russia, the top 1% have 58.6% of the wealth. In the US, it's 31.1%. And in the UK, 21.1% of the wealth. So uh, the point being, the world uh, in some places is the wealth is spread very unequally. Um, and it's not necessarily the ones you might, you might expect, right? Imagine Russia and China having a more unequal wealth distribution than the US and the UK. Some people might be surprised to hear that, but some might not be surprised.
there are a few factors that it seems important to consider, and I anticipate you'll talk about them now. I imagine that inflation and the fact that many Australians own their own home probably explains these numbers. Is that correct? Yeah, so it depends on the country. In some places, it was um, higher, higher financial markets and stock markets did, did most of the heavy lifting. In Australia's case, household wealth and people owning houses, um, that was pretty key. Uh, and yeah, you're right. I mean, this was a time of very low interest rates and a big, big increase in central bank balance sheets and an increase in the money supply. And there has seemed to be a trend over the last 15 years that when central banks really print, if I can use that term, it's not literally true, but let's just think of it as a metaphor. When they print lots of money, it does tend to drive up financial um, you know, stock markets or drive up house prices and all the rest of it. Uh, when interest rates are low, it tends to drive up house prices, and we've seen a bit of that over the last 10 or 20 years in Australia too. When interest rates go down, house prices go up and up. Um, so then there's a question as to, as to the sustainability of it all. Um, and then on the inflation point, yeah, that there could well be, and it would depend on what school of economics you're in, there could well be an argument that there's a, that there's a fair bit of asset price inflation in there, but certainly low interest rates would be a big driver, Jordan. And then something we need to talk about is houses, because it's fascinating that for the average Australian who owns a house, it's a big part of their wealth. But something to, to think about is, I mean, Hong Kong was right up on the list as well. It's very expensive owning a house in Hong Kong. Uh, I love Hong Kong, great city, a place, you know, you wouldn't mind living there for six or 12 months. Lot, lots of stuff going on. You can get on the, the subway very easily. Wonderful city. Uh, but in terms of the actual houses, very, very cramped, very small, not so pleasant. Um, and they have a very high price because the land value is so high there. In Australia, we've got fantastic, massive houses. Um, and so there's, there's an interesting thought there. It's that, well, in Hong Kong, a lot of that wealth is in the value of the, the unit that you own, but it's not necessarily a great unit. In Australia, if you're living in Perth, you've got a fantastic house, potentially, very spacious with a big garden. And so the, you know, your house might be worth a little bit less than the house in Hong Kong, potentially, but certainly it'd be a much better place to specifically be living. Then again, in Hong Kong, you walk out of your house and you can get noodles next door, jump on the subway, go to anywhere. Uh, in Australia, you've got to drive, you know, 15 minutes to get to the train station and then whatever. Uh, but then conversely, think about it like this. If you're in Johannesburg, you might own a house and your house might be worth, I don't know, I'm going to pick a, I'll pick a number, 50,000 US dollars or 100,000 US dollars. Or if you're in Nairobi, you might own a house, it's 50,000 US or 100,000 US. In Australia, you own a house and it's half a million, or if you're in Sydney, it's a million dollars. Is your house really that much better than the house in Nairobi or the house in Johannesburg? It probably has a higher quality, it probably has a higher building standard, probably has better insulation, you've probably got better stuff in the house, and you're living in a much, much better country. It's a wonderful place to live, Australia. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got a house, they've got a house, and yet the wealth number is so different. But in practical terms, what difference does it make? You've got a house and they've got a house. So that's what makes some of these things very interesting to talk about, Jordan. I guess it leads into a general question then of, is it a good thing that a significant store of wealth is housing in Australia, as opposed to some of these other countries? I don't know to what extent other countries are storing <laughs> or citizens of other countries are storing their wealth in housing, as opposed to say share portfolios. Is it a good thing that Australians have put all their money aside into housing? Well, it does make it does tend to make housing less affordable and more difficult for people to to enter the enter the housing market. Mm. You know, if you're a first home buyer, of course, there's plenty of subsidies now and stuff to try and rectify that. Um, the other point, which is interesting, is I mean, we've got a lot of land. We have a heck of a lot of land. 
Um, and we have cities that are very, very spread out like Perth and not particularly dense or high. So isn't it intriguing that our housing, um, and I don't think it's true for me to say that the houses here are more expensive than anywhere because they're not, but they're pretty expensive on a global scale. Mm. Um, and so in some ways that must reflect, you know, uh, the fact that even though we've got a land, we don't we've got a lot of land, we don't use it all. Uh, we don't build up that much on our land. Uh, but then on the other hand, there are benefits to having high home values because you can you can draw down against that. You know, if you've got a half million dollar home and you've paid it off, you can re- you can mortgage against that to start your own business or something. It might be much more would be much more difficult to do that in other places. Um, so it, it's an interesting question worth exploring, Jordan. I know you're very passionate about housing affordability. So what, what were your thoughts on this? Well, I think, as you say there, it speaks to a, a, a political problem or a policy problem that we have in this country wherein we have, as a country, treated the home as a store of wealth as opposed to a place for shelter. And I think, as you're right, it does confer great benefits on the people who do already own a home because I guess there is a general guarantee that the house should increase in value over time and should be there as a a fail-safe should you need to, as you say, borrow against the house or in some instances sell the house and downsize and then have that accumulated wealth uh, turn into a better living standard. At the same time, we have people who are struggling to get into the housing market. Uh, they're subject to the whims of landlords and paying rent. And so I think it's a, it's difficult uh, to say whether or not it's a good thing. Thatcher used to say that um, if you want to have a property-owning democracy, uh, you know, it's good for people to own their own homes. And, and it does have a benefit in, you know, you are then bought into... Uh, if if the house price is going up, you're on the you know you're you're then in on it, and I don't own a house either, right? I'm a renter as well, but it does make sense that you, it changes your interest in how the economy functions very substantially if you're owning a house. Uh, someone made the comment earlier today that um, you know a mortgage does sort of chain you down, which is which I, I really agree with actually. It's one of the reasons I'm very tepid about buying into a house. You know, do I really want to take a massive, massive, massive mortgage um, to pay off forever? and keep me, you know, not being able to do what I want forever, mm. when I could just, you know, I'd, I think personally I'd rather invest in shares or invest in starting my own business or invest in a friend starting a business um, or invest in a local startup or something. I'd rather, I think I'd rather do these things. And I think that's a very millennial position, actually. Yeah. I think a lot of millennials would rather do their own startup than worry about buying a house. So, that, you know, there's advantages to home ownership. But uh, if, you're, if you're borrowing to do it, then you're tied down. Mm, and certainly the cost of entry into owning shares or uh, starting your own business is significantly lower, I would say, than uh, saving for a housing deposit. Having said all of this, inequality in Australia, it's very low. Mm. We've got a very fair and even distribution of wealth. It is a bit, uh, at least for me, difficult to resolve this idea that there is this great renting class that are disadvantaged with the idea that when you look at these numbers, things don't actually seem that bad when you're an Australian. There's much to be optimistic about in this world, Jordan, and I think maybe it does show that we are doing something right. Maybe it is the fact people are saving for houses and owning houses, and when the house value goes up, everyone benefits. Maybe it's everyone's superannuation, everyone's owning shares, and they're participating that way. There's a great benefit to that too. So I'm grateful to live in a place like this, and whether we're the world's wealthiest and what the exact number is isn't necessarily important because we know we do have probably the best living standards in the world, and how lucky are we? Indeed, the sun is shining bright today. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. To get more coverage like this, head to businessnews.com.au and keep your ears out for my my words. Today's episode is also available now. Until next time, Matt, thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au. This business news podcast is supported by Hopgood Gannon Lawyers. Our knowledge and expertise has been delivering exceptional outcomes for nearly 50 years.